and welcome back to Judge Movie. Uh, I'm Ben Flanagan, the movie judge. Uh, we're going to be putting movie culture on trial this week and every week. As always, I'm joined by Elisha Rizumi. Hello, how you doing? Pretty good. Uh, I'm excited to maybe take down the greatest living filmmaker. Yeah, we should interrogate that question, at least. It's Claire Denis, and um, she's got a new film, High Life, out this past week in the UK. Uh, and so we're going to be talking about that alongside her 1999 film, Beau Travai, as part of the 99 project that we've... Is it ongoing? Ongoing series, yeah. 20 years on, do the movies of 99 hold up? And we've got a special guest, special cinema attorney, uh, Joseph Poet. Hello. How are you? I'm very well. You both asked me how I am. <laughs> yeah. we, I'm You're very much, curious. Yeah. <laughs> Given your dilapidated state that you're currently in. Yeah, well, I mean, I've just, I've been sort of hitting the, the Denis hard <laughs> in, the last, in the last week. Leery eyes. Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, walking out of High Life last night, actually, I was, you, do you ever get that feeling where you're like still in a film? You're kind of, the way you look at things. It's oh, like yeah, yeah. The yeah. way the camera moves and stuff. And I, I was feeling that, you know, walking around the barbecue afterwards. Powerful. So, Joseph. Yes. Claire Denis. Tell me about her. Claire Denis. Well, I... Who is she? Who is she? Well, yes. Um, <laughs> she's a French filmmaker who I, on the festival circuit, I've been told for a long time is this a kind of unique, brilliant figure. One you must seek out truly understand the possibilities of cinema you need to look at Claire Denis' work and what she does with the grammar of cinema what she does that is different to perhaps other art forms so I was curious for a while um, the first film I saw Claire Denis was Let the Sunshine In yes at the, the Juliette Binoche star yeah that's right and um, I didn't really have any expectations you know The Veil of Ignorance uh, I saw it and I thought it was all right. Like I didn't, <laughs> I don't, I don't think I possessed quite the faculties and the experience to truly kind of give it the, the credit it deserved. But I remember thinking, yeah, this is interesting. It's all about bourgeois people and their love lives. And it was a really way of introducing Denise. I saw it in this very basic way. I was like, all oh, right, it's about the middle classes. <laughs> um, and that superficially has become seen as like a very light film by her, maybe because it was. Uh, certainly marketed in the UK as like rom-com yeah. you know with the poster with Vinash kind of with her arms out trying Beaming. to let the yeah. let the sun shine in that's it and, and the English translation of that title I can't it's the French title I can't remember it's like a beau soleil interior yeah, yeah which obviously has a different it's, meaning yeah. let the sun shine in seems a lot more kind of definitive and perhaps a bit kind of I don't know yeah like you're going to reach a stadium yeah that sun shine in um, which perhaps isn't that effect. But yeah, so that was my first, that was my first kind of interaction. Then I saw Troubled Every Day Thereafter, mm-hmm. which again, I thought was, I, can't, I didn't really connect. <laughs> I thought, was, what's going on here? It's playing with like some kind of genre tropes. I understand that. This is Denise's kind of singular take on it. Um, obviously it's like quite, you know, called gory and, yeah. and those sorts of things. Um, so I was a bit mm, about it. And then Beau Travai, I saw thereafter that. And, um, yeah, that's when it kind of clicked, I think. And obviously okay. this is perhaps, it's more like kind of a, an exemplar of a filmmaking, perhaps more so than those other films, I don't know. Or whatever that means, I don't know. Um, and, obviously, which we're going to talk about. And then High Life, most recently. Which I can, I can definitely trace connections between Beau Travai and High Life. Perhaps in a way that I can't with the other with two films. I don't know. People yeah. have talked about this link already, haven't they, with, between Beau Travai. Is it just kind of the regiment 
of people trapped in one space. The, the, the clear difference between Beau Travai and High Life, and I think this is, this is new for Claire Denis in High Life, as, as well as all she's shot in a studio, mm-hmm. and it's in this prison environment, um, whereas obviously Beauvais, it's set outside and it's still in its way an exceptional space Certainly. and a prison-like environment. But crucially, the way in which High Life is filmed is, is in this kind of studio. Mm-hmm. And that does something very different. I don't know, we're going to talk about this, but the ways in which movement uh, and way in which bodies interact is much yeah. it's different in a, just necessarily within a kind of enclosed space than it is with the landscapes like it is mm-hmm. in Beauvais. And as people come in from a different, you know, in the... In the Foreign Legion, everyone's opted in some respect to, to join that. I disagree. I think there's an element of duty and S- yes, that they certainly. have to be there because there's nothing else. I think that's what makes them similar, that there's all these very young people who are there and it's like their only option, really. They've already reached the end of like, whatever they're... And I suppose the inverse of that is that there's a kind of degree of choice for the prisoners because they're on death row on Earth. On, yes. In high life, sorry, yeah. I should be precise. They're on death row, or they are having, they definitely have life sentences at least on earth, where it's in, in, implied. Um, and they, th- this was some kind of, it's not really a choice, it's kind of a false choice, yeah. but they took on the mission. Yeah. They left there. So um, Andre Benjamin's character, mm-hmm. he makes the point that I left my wife and sons, or well, wife and kids. Um, they were like, what on earth are you doing? Yeah. Um, and he's, he, he saw that as like a kind of alternative choice. Because it's sort of, su- there's a suggestion of liberty, I suppose. There yeah, is there's a, a so kind of promise. Be, yeah, there'll be an honour because you're serving science. Yeah, It'll be better, is. yeah. But then, of course, that turns out to be pretty false. And but in the same really way as Beauvais as well, which has the same kind of thing of like, you're going to be serving your, your country or like the yeah. country that you've kind of become patriated with. Yeah. I think another similarity is like with Beauvais, these French Foreign Legion soldiers are doing these endless drills they're always just exercising, preparing for doing nothing. Like, they don't have a mission, they don't have a job. And I feel like that's a similar theme in High Life, but I don't think that mundanity and pointlessness is conveyed as well as it is in High Life. I've got to say, I've much, much, much preferred Beau to this new one. I, I, I agree with you in terms of thinking it's kind of superior work. Um, in terms of... I mean... That thing about war and the boringness of war mm-hmm. and all, yeah. all, the, all the kind of the, the expectation or anticipation of war and it not happening mm-hmm. in a, such a rich theme that has been like sort <laughs> yeah. of kind of been uh, uh, excavated by so many kind of... Like, well, there was Jarhead, wasn't there? That was like the kind of mainstream version of, of Beauvais without any other kind of uh, subtext. But there's something yeah. curious... Sorry, there's, there's something curious about... Really speaking to what you're saying about how it's better represented in Beauvais, mm-hmm. they're kind of the, the, this kind of futility to what they're doing. Yeah. But it's almost that like there's some some kind of Sisyphean value to the exercises, to mm-hmm. the okay. So, so perhaps yeah. and you might not find this persuasive <laughs> um, that the exercise there's some value to them. The kind of obstacle courses there is a redundancy there, mm-hmm. of course, but. In high life, it feels like what they're doing is utterly bleak mm-hmm. and pointless. Whereas there seems to be some, perhaps, Sisyphean value in both yeah. July. Perhaps it could actually be just argued the opposite way, I don't know. Because they're trying to, they're trying to sustain yeah. life, aren't they, in high life? And that's yeah. that transcends, that's something much more worth fighting for than conflict and war. But that's just the impression. I, mean, I, I find high life is almost entirely removed from the sci-fi genre, like, at all. It's almost... Really? 
Okay, so yeah, well, you, you you put, no, you well like, it's got these kind of, you know, gestures towards a black hole and, and these kind of 2001 visuals and stuff, but... Really, Which was very accurate for when the, when the black <laughs> yeah. hole uh, photo was finally yeah. released. Yeah, and did you hear her reacting to that? She seemed like, kind of smug, sort of, you know, I knew, I knew what it was. <laughs> it's like, because they had a, was that, a cosmic consultant. They had that guy, yeah. Which is a fantastic... They yeah. should try and redefine most of the kind of doer-sounding <laughs> roles of, of filmmaking. Yeah, what, yeah. like, grip, cosmic grip. Well, it's just, grip's quite an alright start yeah. to get to, to the beginning. With. Cosmic best boy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and I, and I do love the, the way that they've um, explored the, the, that, that visual of, of the black hole with the way that the, um, when the ships enter it, they, they bend, they don't, just, they don't go into it, they become like a part of it. They yeah. stretch until they're, they are that whole. And you become, it? was it spaghettiized or whatever they call it? Spaghettiization, yeah. <laughs> where you. And also for uh, Mia Goff's character in it, I mean, it's just sort of extraordinary when she. We're, we're going spoilers. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. sorry. I, mean, I don't know the etiquette of have... these things. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, to, to be stretched in such a way, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. So, so should we give uh, some context on these movies or like um, a bit of a plot synopsis? Sure. Um, so, Bertrand Vine is narrated by uh, Denis Levant, a sort of French cinema regular. He's this, yeah, he's narrating and recalling his time in the French Foreign Legion, and he's doing his memoirs, and he talks about this time when a very young new recruit came onto his team, and he just intensely disliked him, and things go bad, and in the very end he ends up leaving. And it's just these very repetitive drills throughout the movie, um, dancing at the local nightclubs, the futility of war. So that's both of my. What about, what about High Life? Well, High Life is Robert Pattinson's character, who's called what was his name? Monty. Monty. Monty, Monty of course. Monty yeah. with an E. The full Monty. So yeah. Like Monty Hellman. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Are you Italian? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he, it's him and a, and a young baby, oh, a baby on board this ship. They're completely alone. Um, and slowly we kind of get, it's in media res, so we kind of piece together what went on in the ship, how this baby's kind of come to be, what they're actually up to. Um, in a, and it kind of resembles stuff like, stuff like Alien and Sunshine, where the, the crew members are kind of being picked off one at a time, mm-hmm. but there maybe isn't a singular malevolent force behind it as much as kind of human mm-hmm. free will or whatever. Sort of. Sex and death as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course. How can I? Eros and Thanatos. Yeah, I never expected these. This, yeah, these it's... concepts be so entwined. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of what the whole movie is. You know, you're talking about the the Sisyphean nature of of Beau-Travai, and I don't think that that is a theme so much in High Life. Even though it's got this kind of repetition, I think it is more about the sex drive, the death drive, and what that is when you're taken away from like anything else. What okay. are you at your kind of very core mm-hmm. when we return to like Eden or mm-hmm. yeah. So Andre Benjamin's in charge of this, um, of this, yeah, this, this kind of garden on the spaceship, which is slowly growing out of the, of the area that's designated to it by the end of the movie. It's kind of everywhere. Um, and that's like the first of many biblical kind of parallels that are going mm-hmm. on in here. The, the Edenic angle is, seems to me quite, pronounced mm-hmm. particularly I'm conscious of spoilers here but there's a there's there's obviously the idea that Rob Patson's character is monastic in yes. he's a happy monk which yeah. I thought was great because obviously monks are austere 
<laughs> usually. Um, what do they, they call them? The blue balls or I something. Yeah. Well, this, I mean, that's another thing. Just the, the, this incredible thing about these sort of insults that people direct to each other. Yeah. I found it so jarring. Not in a, you know, in, in, you know, in, a, in a way that was kind of great. Yeah. Um, but like these kind of sort of chart juvenile insults that as the idea of taboos breaking down mm. obviously taboo is foregrounded mm. at the start um, so which I found sort of bizarre yeah. it took me out of it completely just hearing like because <laughs> you know when uh, Julia Benoche's character calls Robert Patterson a happy monk that's after what's he, what's he just said to her it's like there's a bit where he says oh, you know you're, fo- you're foxy yeah, yeah, you, you know, know it yeah. it's just it's kind of um, I don't know if that's a kind of French into English, sort of slightly yeah. bizarre translation. Well, I think that's also how a lot of the people are actually characterised, because really, there's, I, the second time I've, I've watched it was yesterday, and I didn't, in my mind, I'd given that section with, with, with the whole lot of them on the ship a lot more presence. It's actually kind of only about a third of the movie, and I feel like that's it's just short things like that that's actually characterising them and making you kind of understand how they feel about each other and what they really thing which you know there, there isn't much time there's not a scene of them all sitting playing cards is there no. it's all the, the nitty gritty really mm. yeah to extend the kind of Eden parable mm. um, yeah the, this focus on yeah uh, the monastic uh, qualities of Robert Patterson's character Monty uh, is is linked off so it's about reproduction of life obviously this film and it's like there's an Adam and Eve element in there when one of the characters, Mia Goff's character, suffers uh, that kind of awful, awful moment of abuse yeah. and assault, um, Juliette Binoche's character—it's Doctor Dibbs, that's it. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. bizarre. Doctor Dibbs. Yeah, it's, it speaks to a kind of genre of, of some kind. I don't know, yeah, it's like some sort of noiry kind of <laughs> thing. Um, or like Cluedo. Or yeah. She says to Mia Goff's character. Um, she indicates that it would have been a, it was a struggle mm-hmm. this assault that she is ha, contains some purity yes. in some way and thus is perfect for the uh, the beginning of a new mm-hmm. life and I know I'm being very abstract and coy <laughs> about this because I don't want to give away yeah. too much of the thing but there's a sense that there's characters in it who are Adam and Eve and who can produce yeah. a kind of this is about rebirth and, and starting again in mm-hmm. some way which I've which, which struck me as Coming from the Garden of Eden. Yeah, so and 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 Binoche sees herself as a godlike figure. You know, when she's saying like, um, "Oh, you're all just petty criminals," but my crime was something above. But actually, you know, spoilers again. But she's um, killed her children. So is there a kind of thing of like destroying what was before to to then create a new life, mm. um, which she's desperate to do? And then when she when she's impregnated, when she when they've given birth, she's able to then just go off into the abyss and she, she kind of sees it as nothing else well that's it it's very deterministic her, her character yeah. her voice. it's just like yeah this this idea that it's only going to end one way when she achieves all that she desires yeah. and and they don't frame her oftentimes in a sci-fi movie like this she would be framed as like working for the corporation or part of some other uh, entity mm-hmm. and here she the fact that she's also a criminal who's just on board mm-hmm. but has this separate status um, is quite well, she, interesting. She, yeah, she like she becomes an authority figure or a sovereign figure kind of by because she's wearing a white coat, isn't well, it? Yeah, and and just by I mean, who who has authority over the sovereign? It's the sovereign's mother. It's this idea of looking perhaps towards some kind of not necessarily even maternal, but an an authority figure who can 
give and take mm. life as this authority figure so explicitly does yeah. in terms of why she's up there in the first place like you say she's killed her own her mm. own crimes killing children and now she's ready to to try and produce life again in it by any means necessary I think it seems to be a very Juliet Binoche seems to be doing a lot of these characters in Ghost in the Shell she plays this like maternal scientist who's trying to make the perfect android with Scarlett Johansson and Michael Pitt yeah. and it seems like she's torturing all these teen idols and then again in <laughs> which I haven't seen but her relationship with Chloe Moretz it's weird like she's always got a lot of tension and control issues with these and in, young stars in um, Godzilla wasn't she also like partly responsible for Godzilla coming out of the I haven't seen was it that a, but could that yeah. be another thing and yeah. Aaron Taylor Johnson and stuff in that it's like yeah was monstrous it? mother thing she's always mm. I don't know what she's and here they make it towards. very literal with her being like a witch as they say, she's got the giant hair and stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and well, for the film, it was originally supposed to be Patricia Arquette for mm. this role, and mm. then Claire Denis was like, uh, Patricia Arquette had to pull out for whatever reason, and then it was like, we need a replacement. She's like, Juliet, will you do it? She was like, yeah, no problem. <laughs> so there's a sense that she knew she could uh, yeah. take on the role yeah. with, with mm. you know, with relative capacity. There, and it's an interesting performance where, like, you know, you know Juliet Binoche is always great and she's obviously kind of incredible here, but it's like, is she actually doing very much or is it just, is it just her? And is that also part of the Denis thing that's stripping away, you know, any other frills? So you kind of, it has that Binoche essence. Perhaps, I mean, I'm not an expert on, on Binoche. On Binoche, but, sorry. Yes. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, there's a, there's a sense, isn't there, that yeah. the actor's sort of left. But the, the way in which I understand, and I understand, like, this is Denise's style of working, is that disorganisation and chaos is, is a necessary mm. part of mm. her method, uh, which, you know, can be slightly overwrought when you like, try and intellectualise that. Yeah. Um, but there's a sense that characters, apparently Robert Pattinson on set, I think that might have been one of the things you yeah. sent me, was, uh, like was lots of existential questions, <laughs> like, what is my character? What is my role? Who am I? Who am I? Um, <laughs> and there's a clearly not necessarily deliberately withholds that information, but her style of working is that she withholds a lot and then the, the actors then either perhaps take on mm. their default characteristics of acting, whatever that might mean, or uh, they're just so kind of befuddled. That yeah. <laughs> they're, they're sort of... Well, it was, I think it was in that same New Yorker thing where she talks about her like wooing the actors and obviously there is a lot of kind of... Um, beforehand as well. Yeah, beforehand. So to get them in, she woos them. And then, you know... So much of her style is about like looking at these people and and watching them and them looking at other people. That I wonder if this is all part of it. It's all like make you know just playing into people's ego until they kind of, <laughs> but not giving them actually much to to grandstand within the film. So they just kind of have a certain presence and they kind of play up to that. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I um, imagine yeah. that is the result. But by the sounds of it, the way Denis puts it. Uh, is that it's it's not intended, but that is her. That is but, what she yeah. does. But it's not like there's some grandmaster plan behind it. But no, it does yeah. produce. I mean, forget agency. I suppose that's the result. That's the, yeah. She's 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 a perv. I find her movies like super like horny all the time. Someone's always getting cucked. There's always like two people having some kind of moment, and they're always being watched by someone else who's mm-hmm. feeling horny. I mean, yeah, that's all over high life. And, the sex box. To speak to the, the first Denis film I saw, which perhaps shows you how intuitive this idea of looking, and perhaps if we talk about bodies particularly, just for this in, instance, 
Um, when I saw Let Sunshine In, the first scene, Juliette Binoche's character, Isabelle, Isabella, I think, um, is her naked having sex. Yeah. And it's very candid, and it's you know, it's, you know, it's, it's no frills. But what that scene does, and what I wrote at the time, which I now seems to speak a lot to this this other work, is that after seeing that first scene where she is naked, afterwards, to have clothes on seems grotesque and obscene mm -hmm. and wrong. Mm -hmm. For the rest of the film, every time I saw someone wearing clothes, I thought, that oh, right. is the abnormal. <laughs> the normality is in this kind of candid look at the body. And I think that's it. So her as a filmmaker looking, she, you know, she talks mm. about how she's not obsessed with bodies, she's obsessed with beings, and bodies are just a natural part of that obsession with beings. Yeah. Um, so she tries to make that kind of sort of removal in a way. But that's, that's, that was the intuitive response that I had. And I guess speaks a lot, perhaps, to Bo Travai and just bodies. Like, when they're under the beating sun, I expect everyone to be topless. And the ones that are, I go, yes, that makes yeah, sense right. to me. And the few that are wearing a vest still, or the few that are still wearing T-shirts when they're doing their exercise, mm -hmm. and I, I'm thinking, God, what on earth is wrong with you? And that's partly an acknowledgement it's hot in Djibouti, of yeah. course. But also, I think it's the way, it must be something slightly intangible to my mind, mm. about the way she frames these bodies. Mm -hmm. It kind of makes me repulsed by clothing. That's great. And it is, especially in, in Boat Travai with the... Is he the Admiral or the, kind of the Captain? He's, he's Sa well, Sergeant, I think. Yeah. Is it, who are we what? talking about here? Denis Levant or his boss? His boss. His boss. His Michel Subor, is that? Yes, that's it, of course, yeah. And, and he, he has the same name as um, in the... Oh, what's his name in it? God. Um, so he's called Forestier. Yeah, he and a that's a name there. That he's played before. In The Little Soldier, which is... Yeah. Oh, well, but he—he's always wearing a shirt, and he—he's very detached from the kind of main emotional journey that a lot of the other mm -hmm. characters are going on. And just, so, yeah. just yeah, just to talk about shirts quickly, the way he irons, and I'm sure this has been talked about <laughs> a lot. That black shirt. So this yes. is talking about Denis Levant's character, who's uh, Galoop. The way he irons that black shirt, it is genuinely. One of the most heartbreaking things I've ever seen. Yeah. yeah. So there's something, it really speaks that idea of trying to present yourself in the most flattering way possible. And for that, being utterly futile often. Mm. Like when you get ready to go out on a night out, mm -hmm. I try and, you know, yeah. clean myself up <laughs> and as good as I possibly can. Yeah, well, that's it. Um, when I try and do that, and then I go home and I haven't, you know, snogged anyone or anything, mm. you just think, God, that's the most flawed and tragic thing ever. Yeah. I spent ages trying to, you know. And the, and the framing in those shots is, is really, like, flat as well. It's a lot of very cramped kind of spaces, and you kind of feel that, that mm. introspection there, right? I mean, if we're asked, I mean, perhaps we're not being asked to empathise in Denis films, perhaps that would be a mistaken thing, I don't know. But I empathise with Galoot mm. in those scenes yeah. when otherwise he is kind of the most sort of horrible, reputable yeah. character for the rest of us. In those scenes where I kind of think, you know, God, you and I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think that this is, you know, this level, levels of sympathy within her work is, part, is, is, is in part informed by this kind of editing style when we were talking about the parametric narration, which, which was something that I found from a, a David Broadwell quote. And it's... And, if it's taking lots of different perspectives or different viewpoints from scene to scene from you know every time you kind of 
when you work out which character is looking, and that's maybe how you're supposed to sympathise, is sympathising with their looking, or sometimes mm-hmm. that's kind of um, subverted as well, then it kind of gives you the ability to sympathise with someone and also kind of find them repulsive in the next scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a huge journey with Denis Levant, and his look is so integral to that because mm-hmm. he's a weird looking guy, but an amazing mm. mover, an amazing actor. Yes, I mean, I think it helps explain um, perhaps, you know, these conflicted feelings that you have towards mm. the characters and the kind of general state of unease you have watching Bojavai particularly. Um, it's this idea, so with parametric narration, I mean, again, I'm, I'm such a layman when it comes to this, but the sense of this, this idea of something being autonomous and unified, as if Denis is in control yeah. of what she is doing, and such control breeds the possibility of, you know, rupture and kind of uh, like kind of like a, a solo or something like that. It's like <laughs> yeah. you have this unified whole, and it is so controlled and so sharply composite that you can then you are then allowed with you know within you can, order. That's where disorder that's where is. Goes, you know, yeah. it's like the classic modernist mm-hmm. trope actually. But and like, that's why I think the more of her movies you watch, the more rewarding they become. Like whatever order you watch them in, that doesn't really matter to me. But yeah, you start to notice the rhythms that go across her work. Well, what you're saying like tracks with other Denis films I've seen. I saw US Go Home, and there's this part where a girl, her best friend, her brother at this party, and it's just like very barely any dialogue, but it's just an exchange of looks, and the dynamics just really come through without any dialogue, and it's really heartbreaking how they were looking at each other, and how they, you know what they want. And I've seen that in all the movies I've seen of hers, but I didn't get that in High Life. Like, I didn't feel that. It really failed in that area for me, like the minimal expression, but you still mm-hmm. feel it. I don't think that happened in High Life. I, and what, do we think that's because of the setting? Like, the, na- na- the natural, you know, by nature, the innate claustrophobia to a kind of prison mm-hmm. studio shot kind of setting, which the kind of landscapes, especially in Bochvai, they allow. Mm-hmm. They allow the interaction between the looking and the bodies. Feels like it's it's occurring with the landscape, and you right. need that landscape to fully kind of have a kind of satisfactory kind of aesthetic experience to the film, which is perhaps lacking in high life. I did feel a sense of emptiness coming mm. out of high life, like as mm-hmm. if there was a component of the kind of tableau missing, or there was a component. Yeah. There needed to be something. There needed to be a living kind of landscape to kind of really bring in, bring into relief these engagements between the characters. These the new thing. I, I, I don't it was know. about that emptiness, about blackness, about inertia, about being away from those landscapes. What is left when you are like yeah. when you're in the high life? When it's just you and one other human or nothing. You know, and being, I, I, and, and, and every time anyone's kind of reaching any kind of satisfaction, it's through, um, they're like blocked by someone else. So, so when, um, when the pregnancy happens, it's her extracting the semen and putting it into Mia Goth, and that creates a baby. Or it's, uh, you know, the, the guy that ends up attacking Mia Goth, masturbating while watching two other people being intimate. Or it's entering the sex box. Like, so there's always, like, something in between. The fuck box, come the, on. Sorry, the fuck <laughs> box, sorry. I'm thinking of the Channel 4 show from years ago. So, you know, and even entering the black hole at the end as a form of consummation mm-hmm. between father and daughter is they're fucking through the black hole. They're not, you know, do you know that it's like bodies that 
actively kind of separated in some way, mm-hmm. even if the end result or even if your fantasy of the end result is the same. I think the film is, is, is theoretically consistent, like you say. It makes sense. But as an experience, I guess I, right. I, I found that that was missing. Perhaps that's what isolates High Life in a way from perhaps the other films, mm. is the sense of the, the interaction with the landscape is different. Again, this is not a, a kind of uh, necessarily trying to put value on it and mm. saying it's worse or no, better of because of it. But it is, it is set, certainly different. I think Ryan Gilby in his New Statesman piece alludes a lot to the setting being this kind of negative aspect to the mm. film uh, in, in his viewing experience, um, which perhaps isn't the case, but it certainly just makes it distinct. I mean, it's not the location that is what's hurting the film um, in High Life. I think that location works really well, and you can see them all interacting with it, and I think it's really interesting and cool sci-fi stuff, but I feel it's very underwritten. Like, you talk about Denis Levant and ironing his shirt, but I feel like there's no item like that in High Life. I feel like they're incredibly underwritten. I don't know who these characters are. Even if they are stripped back, it still feels like, you know, ciphers and... I, I, I agree, and I, and I wasn't even sure what archetypes they were supposed to be if they were kind yeah. of underwritten. I, like, you weren't even, like, so Dr. Dibbs has a love interest in high life, so to speak. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, played by Lars Eidinger. Mm. Um, and he's, I think I read after the fact, he's the captain of the ship. Oh, yeah, I didn't get that at all. And... I mean, I don't know if that's just a misre- or misreading or whatever, mm. but I did not get that at all. And often I found that coming out, and I spoke about it with the person I went with, Sarah, and I said to her, it's like, like, which, what were each of these people doing? Like, what was their role in the film? Like, what was their purpose? And it's not necessarily that has to be kind of outlined, but you kind of thought, if a few of them went, I wouldn't probably notice much of the difference at all. And you have like, I don't know, so I mean, you had that kind of wise sage, the the woman who's like this kind of, who, who was the supposed pilot. to go and fly yeah. into yeah, the black she's hole. Yeah, which I didn't understand yeah, really at all. <laughs> yeah, anyway. that's a bit where, she, where Rob Patterson's character goes, you're, a, you're an expert pilot or something <laughs> along those lines. It's like, oh gosh. Like, but do you think that Beautrevay, uh characterises the entire squad anymore? Because to me, it's still only maybe three or four players in that. No, that's right. But it makes sense, Bertrand. It sounds like a useless thing because they're, they're you know, it's, yeah. it's a group of yeah. men at a conflict. Whereas it feels like they are particularized in high life. Mm-hmm. They all have they're bits of dialogue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They all enough. And this is actually, I think, I think Bertrand is so satisfying in lots of ways, but it, it pretty much does away with exposition. Pretty much, mm-hmm. not entirely. Like the the bits of narration, voiceover, and the like. Uh, off exposition so it it, it goes for it yeah. it goes for the elliptical images it goes for the t- type of storytelling the grammar it has its own internal logic whereas a feel of high life I don't know why necessarily this is the case um, it feels like it kind of it does the same sort of elliptical images it does that same kind of logical storytelling where we've got to ourselves as viewers try and piece together what's going on. You, you're doing, mm. your brain's doing a particular type of working when you're watching a Denis film. And mm. I think it does that. But then it has these bizarre moments of exposition as well. And you're talking that, about the guy on the train. Well, the guy on the train. And I read, <laughs> I read the piece about how people were saying, telling to Claire Denis, you should get rid of that scene. And she's like, I wanted to keep it. <laughs> you know, fuck you all. Um, which I think, fair enough. She's, so she acknowledges that this scene yeah. seems anonymous and seems bizarre. And like when I came out being all clever as far as like, what's the point of that scene? I actually quite um, I felt it was quite useful just to have one scene of a guy saying this is what's going on, and it and it kind of took me back to like 
the start of something like Solaris where you have just this ton of exposition at the start and you're like, well, I'm just watching some old guy on a TV screen like saying what's going on. And you could have got rid of that and just started with it all in yeah. space. But it's like something of Earth, something of what they are missing, even if it's not directly their experience. I, th- like, I think it's perhaps just to, the, to one's expectations. And I think when I was watching it, I was like, this has pretenses to be a, a formal, unified work of art. Mm-hmm. And then to have these kind of jarring bits of exposition in it, for me, just from that expectation yeah. of trying to watch something unified and formal, and you're committing to a type of storytelling. Like when you read a novel, yeah. you, you, you adapt to the writer's style, and you adapt to uh, the way in which they, they present events. You know, when you, if you read like a, a Virginia Woolf novel after reading, you know, a Sally Rooney novel, your brain's got to do twenty different things to yeah. kind of get into that flow of storytelling. I felt with Claire Denis, I was being set up in a certain way, i.e., but without that... it to not have exposition. I'm not saying this is bad. No, 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 but I'm saying this is what you're saying of what we're talking about parametric mm. um, narration. I'm accidentally highlighting this. Yeah, where you can commit so much that when you break it, it takes you out of the storyline. But maybe it's. For a point. Well, that's it. And I think perhaps the insults as well and that scene on the train yeah. uh, with the professor. Just to, clar- just to clarify, this is where the professor is uh, saying they're never coming back. Yeah. The people into space. Yeah, so they throw mates into prison as cruel. They don't yeah. have a choice. Etc. And we don't see these... And it's like a journalist interviewing. Yeah. We don't see either of these people no. again. And, you know, by some conventional metrics, you're going, what the hell is this? What is the <laughs> point of this? This is bizarre. There's no need for it. Just cut it. However, what you're saying, that perhaps this is Denise working. Yeah. And you can't stop, you know. And I wondered if there was something significant about putting it on a train and that as being like an alter- a very earthbound form of transport, mm-hmm. right? Where you're going across the earth, whereas this box, well, they are in a fuck box in space, well, is and just floating and you don't, it doesn't seem to have a direction. And there's a death now on the train, isn't there? The sound yeah, of the, exactly. <laughs> the sound of it. Yeah, well, and, and, you see, right. and you see Mia Goff and her like cronies on the train oh, where yeah. they have, she has a flashback and she's like reaching to the stars. I loved all the stuff on well, there. The, they, I, they I really... loved. The, I, well, I, I stint. I mean, I, I don't know. I kind of was impressed or liked the sort of grainy way that those mm. scenes were shot. Apparently, they were shot in Poland as well. A lot of those swamp scenes. Uh, okay, yeah. so that's where the Polish that's money right. came from. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, I, I don't know. What did we think of the way in which... I don't actually understand the technical elements of film at all, so you're going to have to fill this in for me if, if it needs to be. But they were shot differently, though, scenes, yes, weren't they? Yeah, I think they were all shot on different um, film stocks. Which has which is what to... And that's to indicate memory, I suppose, in a quite easy yeah. way. And it's the idea that memory and perception are coterminous. Like, we cannot distinguish between the two. Is yeah, like, and, and, and that's and the one way... Film film stock is, for a lot of people, associated with something feeling more tactile or more realistic or, you know... Because they're on Earth and yeah. it's like... Okay. Um, and digital is associated with a sterile kind of look. And so... But but to me, it really brought to mind, um, like, Stalker. You know, how that has a completely different look when they're inside the zone. Yeah. Compared to outside. Mm. And I felt like that's kind of what she was going for. I love the shot of... Um, the child patterns and just dropping the um, the rock into into the bottom of a well, mm-hmm. and I think that's matched with something from space. So it's like, yeah, it's matched with him dropping the spanner into space, and it's this like, um, yeah, the the infinite in the kind of earthly yeah. everyday object. 
Yeah, and, and the film has that kind of formal unity. So obviously we have the Eden, the, the garden at the start. You have the shot down the ladder. It's quite a prominent shot yeah. down the ladder to show the kind of prison environment. Or mm. like this is like the kind of metonym for the prison environment. Um, and that comes at the end of the film as well. So again, this is what's speaking to my idea of this is kind of like quite conscious formal artwork, yeah. piece of art. And then these kind of moments of rupture between which we're perhaps theorising as parametric narration I mean I'm so <laughs> uncertain no, I'm saying I've never seen like, parametric narration yeah sort of mere fold but yeah. um, but I mean I found that quote was talking about Ozu and if Denis has this kind of affinity with, with Ozu to such an extent and I don't know enough about Ozu's work no I think it's um, a useful way to talking about I, just yeah, Denis just because it's just think of her, like yeah. we were saying before it's, it's just nice not to perhaps Try out saying words like elliptical over and over again. Yeah. Because even I don't even know what I'm saying anymore if when I say that. So it's useful to sort of. Because elliptical has this, it seems vague, and I don't think that her work is vague. I think it all has a direction. Everyone I've seen has a purpose. It's just that it's up to you to kind of figure that out and make that association between scenes. No, but let's say, yeah, it's like it's, it's asking something particularly of the viewer, which I like. It's interesting. Like all the best works of art and fiction there's a kind of difficulty to them mm. well not even necessarily a difficulty but to ask something of the viewer I and mean, when i first got into reviewing films this is what i lacked i often read films in a very either literary way or political way i've definitely read let the sunshine in a kind of bizarre political way i was just going oh, i was about middle class love lives yeah. and so I, and I just look back at that now i think what on earth am i bloody talking about like, i need like, i was not engaging with the art object in the way that it deserved. Yeah, that was um, really, weirdly just sticks in my head all the time. I kind of go back to that as like essential Denis in some way in the kind of cycling through these these lovers, and it could almost be completely who are all wonderful archetypes as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. The male t- a topography of male wolfness, <laughs> and maybe that's it because they are so specific archetypes in a way that they're not in high life. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, maybe that's her trying to break away from the tradition of Alien and Sunshine and Event Horizon. You, you... So you're saying it breaks away from these sci-fi slasher movies that gesture to these big questions. For me, it fails and pales in comparison to them. Like, yeah, I was thinking of Sunshine, I was thinking of Event Horizon, like how they're yeah, doing these things much more successfully. Because I know who these characters are and I feel them and they have these small moments and these relationships mm. um, that... Yeah, sadly, isn't in high life. So, is that, even if you look at it as just being like a Robert Pattinson experience, you feel that even he is a is a protagonist or or some kind of you know cipher through which to view it. Even he kind of falls down as a. I mean, it's there's a, there's something there. There's a bit of presence there, and the scenes with him and the baby are you know great, and yeah. it is quite cool. Like as that develops, but yeah, still, it's not enough mm. for the film, mm. and. Something I really loved about Beau Travai is that it's sort of the story of this sergeant who's incredibly cruel to this young, handsome, new recruit. He's, he's a good guy. Sentan, mm. is it? Yeah. 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 Like a Denis regular. He's great. Um, and we're told this story from the perspective of the sergeant, who's not even really sure why he's doing these things, why he's treating this person this way. Um, but in High Life, it's sort of, you could say it's the story of this cruel doctor torturing this young charismatic our hero Rob Pattinson but it's told from his perspective and that just makes it so much much less interesting mm. to me like this very familiar dynamic mm. is just replaying itself again and we end with the hero and she has her trauma as well mm-hmm. 
Doctor Hammond, yeah, we don't, it's sort of suggested and it's, we're not having it through her experience. Mm. Like you say, perhaps coming from perspective of Robert Pattinson's character does, does sort of hobble the film in a lot of ways, I don't know. But isn't the real journey about him and his daughter? Yeah, well... And that's kind of, that's where you end up. He's not necessarily a hero at the end, is he? He's just on, off to fuck his kid to well, maybe continue mankind. Or yeah, I mean, I don't know if we should briefly deal with this incest question. Which comes up again and again in her well, work. Nick well. Pinkerton yeah. says it in his piece, doesn't mm. Or he alludes to it, sorry. Yeah. Um, and this is something that comes up a lot with Denis, I understand. Yeah. Um, I didn't get that instinctively from the film. I know she's... So the daughter, when she, she... We have this jump, don't we? Where the daughter is in mid-teens or early yeah. teens. She's just started menstruation. So yeah. I, I think that was yeah, yeah, that's it's the, the beginning, first, isn't yeah. it? Um, well, it's definitely framed as such. Yeah. Um, and she's sharing a bed. Again, spoilers, I don't know. She's sharing a bed with, with Monty, Robert Pattinson's character. I assume that if you grow up, you're, all your formative years are spent on a spaceship, you're going to be slightly kind of, you know, reduced yeah. or fucked up in some way. You probably are going to stay with your parent in bed a long time. I mean, yeah. I read it as that. In my naivety, yeah. in my innocent naivety, <laughs> I read it as just a kind of natural but it's both, byproduct. That's kind of... Well, this is it now with this reading, I sort yeah. of see. But, you and, know, and, it, and it sets it up by... Um, I think there's a very long or significant shot of Binochet and then it cuts to the top of the daughter's head and him stroking the head. So it almost makes you think that it's him stroking Binoche and then he's waking up from sleep. So it's like, has he been dreaming about her? And it's his daughter there and that's kind of mm. not it. And then later on, well, right at the end, she says, do I look like my mother? And it's like, well, she looks like Juliette Binoche. She doesn't look like me a girl. She's... Do you think that's a thread of the thing? Well, I don't know what that was trying to say, but that was... Because okay. he's looking at her going, mm, you don't look like your mother. Okay. And I was like, I, I couldn't, well, maybe that's a misreading, but I couldn't no, work out what that was. Okay. I did love that scene, that, in a way, at the end, where he, he comes back from outside, from space, and he's like in the kind of uh, decontamination unit, and he's speaking to his yeah. teenage daughter. You just never see her mouth <laughs> move in this conversation. You just see her eyes just peering over. I just thought it was quite curious. Yeah. No idea really what it meant, but mm. I found it like a curious... Like the dialogue they were actually speaking, again, perhaps talking to like, the way it's written, I was kind of like... like cause he was like, you don't understand cruelty. He says this yeah. kind of very dramatic statement uh, because obviously he, he, he knows cruelty and dogs are, the dogs, are, are, yeah. are a motif that uh, mm. is, is quite you know foregrounded, obviously, at the end. So... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I suppose what I'm kind of interested in is bringing it onto like a kind of thematic event. So cruelty is 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 explicit there, um, but to bring it back to again to Beaujolais, but perhaps Link's high life as well is is envy, as and I really like talking about envy. That's your angle. It, well, you know, yeah, is it, embarrassingly is my angle. Like envy, I, I find fascinating. So obviously, in originally in the Billy Bud, the text on which obviously Beaujolais is based. Um, envy is this agency. As you know, when you're trying to analyse a literary text, you're always like, where is the agency? You know, it starts with Macbeth, you're trying yeah. to locate like, hey, what's his agency, and it goes on for all literature thereafter. Galoop, played by Denis Levant mm-hmm. in Beaujolais, is Clagger in Billy Bud. You're right. Mm-hmm. And Clagger, like Galoop, is like kind of 
uh, not wholly evil figure, but ultimately uh, leads to the, um, the... It causes Billy Budd, who is the figure of... Um, Saint Anne. Saint Anne in, in... So they each correspond to one another. Yeah. So uh, Captain Veer and Billy Budd corresponds to Forestier mm-hmm. and... What off? <laughs> they, they all correspond. So the the three main characters yeah. of uh, Bojovai correspond to the three main characters of Billy Blood. In Melville's take on it, envy is quite it's quite explicit. Mm-hmm. It's still quite subtle. It's Melville, after all. You know, he must be quite good at presenting mm-hmm. these things. Um, but this is what Bojovai does so wonderfully. I think is that it really does create more of an ambiguity around. Mm-hmm. The envy it is that's what perhaps cinema as a uh, as a medium can do that literature can't in terms of the way in which it presents images it presents looking, but yeah envy as a sin is a fascinating one. Mm-hmm. So because out of all the sins, it like arguably is the worst of all because <laughs> sends you green. It sends you green. <laughs> the thing is about envy is that you necessarily want to possess something. Whereas other sins, like pride, or greed, or gluttony, or whatever, you, you normally have something, and you're trying to guard it, mm-hmm. keep it for yourself. Whereas envy, there's a necessary impotence to it. You don't have something, and you want to take from something. Because jealousy, obviously, being distinct from envy, jealousy being you have something, and someone takes it for you. Like someone new is going out with your girlfriend or boyfriend. Is that what jealousy? Ah, okay. Yeah, so gen- jealousy is necessarily jealousy. a sense of losing Losing's something. Envy is a sense of wanting to possess something that you don't have. Mm-hmm. So that state of, mm. you know, not having something is kind of crucial and makes it kind of distinct. It's the most one which people are most embarrassed to articulate, I think. Okay. You don't want to tell people you're envious. It really kind of undermines yeah. you in some way. And that perhaps speaks to why for um, Galoop, particularly. He represses it so much and mm. that's what creates such a kind of, this sort of event where he sends off Sentan or like he creates the conditions from which Sentan is going to be sent away yeah. and then not find his way back. Um, and I just find, thematically speaking, envy just, yeah. just absolutely, like a brilliant thing to try and de- depict cinematically because mm-hmm. it is the looks mm. and it is, the thing that it, it so obviously, we've talked, this is very obvious, but like Beaujolais is an impressionistic retelling of Billy Budd. However, it does retain one key element, the idea that Santan, just like Billy Budd, is a foundling. I.e. he was just, you know, like a, he was just in the yeah. uh, Storks uh, <laughs> sort of carrier. And um, this idea of him being found, it suggests, that's what it also impresses. Mm-hmm. The sergeant of Forestier in 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 Beaujolais. It's this idea, of God, and you are as you are, witty, <laughs> yeah. charismatic, <laughs> handsome, and a foundling. It's just like it's, and it adds to his purity, and it and it feeds, even if not explicitly, into the envy of Galoot, mm. and why he would go to such you know measures to such an extent. So, and what we see that as well, we see it so explicitly because obviously, like you say, Denis Levant is a very unique-looking man. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't even say ugly. <laughs> no. But he's unique exactly. looking yeah. and different. Yeah. And in such circumstances, when you have someone who's conventionally handsome, I.e. Santana, mm-hmm. 
you can imagine the sort of feelings that it yeah. evokes. And you are doing that all yourself when you watch Bojo Boy, I find. Yeah. And that's why it's such a wonderful film, because mm-hmm. you are just doing all of that. Mm. So you're the film presents these images and you are just looking into their <laughs> interiority and you are seeing all manner of demons. But that's interesting, isn't it? Because you're saying it's like, in a way, it's doing the work for you or at least it's guiding you so specifically that you don't have to to, such... to really, you know, in a way that highlight you, you are kind of saying, what what is this trying to say? And mm. like, But there's such a logic to, yeah. to her images. like yeah. it's there, And that's what you adapt to. That's what mm. you adapt to. And again, that's what, again, probably speaks to this parametric narrative yeah. sort of uh, framework is this idea that when the ruptures come that's what makes them so disconcerting because there is a logic to her images in High Life for example when Monty is chucking off all the dead inmates at the start mm-hmm. chucking them off into the into the abyss of the ship mm-hmm. um, you just see him chucking them off and in your head you're going I guarantee the next shot is going to be all of them in repose yeah, mm-hmm. it's like maybe stylized. They're not. They're just tunneled, going straight down like that. But you imagine some stylist, stylized composition of yeah. these bodies floating mm-hmm. in the air, and that's what you get. So there's a logic, there's a predictability to it, which is, and that is not shown often in Denise films or Denise films that I've seen through Dark. Mm. It is in just in the images, and that that is a kind of genius. In a way. There's a brilliance Definitely. to that idea, which then makes the kind of ruptures, which all the more kind of disconcerting. And I think, well, well, Zadie Smith, this is speculation, but Zadie Smith was like an original writer on it. And she's very verbose and loves to play with dialogue in her books. So I think that that didn't work out at all. And she kind of, uh, Denise said, oh, I was pushed with some English writer. And I wonder if the, the, the Zadie Smith version would have been more of what you're saying, where you actually have characters that, mm-hmm. that are, I don't know, interacting in a, in a more satisfying way. Mm-hmm. And if that's what Denise kind of repelled by, in some, some way. But her other films aren't like that. I think there's still something there, even if it's not necessarily yeah. in dialogue. It's still there in the looks, which I... I mean, just the point about. on Smith as well. Like, from what I understand, it was conceptual as well. It wasn't just, you know, what Zadie Smith wanted to do was, in the piece that I saw, the excerpt was wanted to bring it back down to earth. The characters had to return oh, home. Yeah. And obviously, Claire Dean's going, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> like, there's no way that they can go home. It defeats them. And perhaps that was explains that strange train mm. scene, why it necessarily has to be. Because that's Claire Dean going, no, they're so staying no. up there. Yeah, yeah. Um, as, as to perhaps counteract that kind of desire to make it more human by bringing it down, yeah. or some kind of narrative kind of closure by bringing them back to earth, I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, the idea of Zadie Smith and Eclair Denis, yeah, yeah. it feels like a kind of produ- production idea, mm. executive I wonder how much ideas. that links into this uh, idea that we've not really talked about of, like, Eclair Denis as a post-colonialist or potentially even just colonialist filmmaker, mm-hmm. um, and this idea of, like, not returning home or... Um, mm-hmm. No, that, I just like the sound of that. Where are you, where are you going with well, that? Well, I, I, I struggle to find, because I think that's a very predominant theme in a lot of her work, mm-hmm. is um, uh, directly addressing her upbringing in Djibouti as the daughter of a uh, colonial like sergeant. Um, and so I, was, I, I couldn't find that in high life very much. Uh, and my closest take was, you know, talking about mass incarceration mm-hmm. and what that might say. But... Um, in this kind of America, yeah, if she's transposing it to America, 
This is an American film, really. I mean, there is that kind of, I thought, awkward piece of dialogue, perhaps necessary, where Andre Benjamin's character, that there is, uh, you know, someone dies on the ship, it's a black character, and he goes, even in space, the black ones, you know, die yeah. first, or words to that effect. That's like the most Hollywood line. In the <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, you kind of, again, it's clearly working in mysterious ways that I don't fully comprehend, but I just mm. that was bizarre, because it's, it, was, it seemed apparent, to me, yeah, that that would be the that that's the suggestion. I think I've read an interview with her where she said they didn't have that line, and then uh, people were like, "Oh, the producer said, oh, in America you can't have the black guy die first." Like, oh right, yeah, because yeah. yeah. it's sensitive in a way. That yeah, and she said that that was just mad. You know, that was that that very interesting. That anxiety that does make sense. Yeah, um, but it is yeah, it is a line that kind of stakes jumps out, doesn't it? But yes, yeah, so, so, so to characterise this d- debate about, I mean, this becomes, yeah, does, so Denise has this is unique background. She is mm. the daughter of, uh, I don't know what to describe. An officer. Uh, they're, like, not ambassadors, but they were sort of officers. Yeah, closer to military. And that was Djibouti, yeah. or different parts of Af- that kind of area of Africa, yeah. perhaps. Um, so obviously there's a lot built into that, just from who she is mm. as a person. Um, and whether that then permits her to be able to um, film with a courtesy, this, you know, yeah. that setting of Djibouti particularly, let's talk about it mm-hmm. with regards to Djibouti, or whether that's still quite dubious, mm. politically speaking or not. I mean, obviously there is immediately a class and wealth element to it, yes. presumably quite comfortable affluent upbringing, even before we get to the race element, which is, of course, she, she does. She addresses that quite directly in White Material, okay. which is about, uh, that's set in an unnamed African nation, where there's a civil war breaks out, and these plantation owners, white plantation owners, uh, refuse to leave, mm-hmm. even though, because they're just like, well, this is our, this is where we live, and this is where we've grown up, so why should we leave? And suddenly, all of the people in the neighbourhood that were her friends, you see the kind of actual um, distance between them. Mm-hmm. So I know you referred to a tweet in, in the materials before um, that had someone saying, uh, I can't remember their name. Yeah, that was, because um, she's called Little Chop Cheese. Okay, and, and she's saying, uh, the tweet was worth the effect, uh, I think. Someone please write about the colonial gaze that's dripping off her work, bro. Yeah, which, um, which is fair enough. So it, there's a sense that perhaps in the rush to praise Claire Denis as uh, a great filmmaker, and particularly now, it's the mm. idea we female theme or women filmmakers should be kind of really emphasised. Yeah. And if we're looking for women filmmakers, let's, you know, Claire Denis has got to be, to be up there as some sort of like kind of, uh, I don't know, some symbol Sandy, yeah. of, of the way in which uh, inclusivity should work in terms of filmmaking. It sounded very mealy mouth, you know what I'm getting at. Um, uh, and then I suppose that tweet's going, great, okay, Lord, play the you like, but you can't admit these kind of, mm. what would be called problematic politics of it. I mean, I have to admit, um, when I came out of High Life, I was, my friend Sarah, she hadn't seen any other Claire Denis films, and I was saying about Bo Chavai, and I was saying, yes, it's, uh, you know, it's brilliant, I, much, I preferred it to High Life, it's a brilliant film, I think it encapsulates perhaps what Claire Denis is doing as an artist or a filmmaker. Um, and I sort of made the point, which I think is perhaps very dubious, mm-hmm. um, that the way in which she de- depicts, Denis depicts 
Djibouti um, and the, the local people in Djibouti in that film, I thought was very generous. Well, not even generous. I mean, that's even a bad word yeah. to start with. But it, uh, it, it did not... Um, I thought it frames it frames them in such a way in Bo Travai that they're always there, mm-hmm. and we see from their perspective we see them looking at the. Mm-hmm. the, the yes, boat. there's that particular shot of the club, and as they as all the soldiers enter with their little mm-hmm. hats on, uh, that's kind of yeah. quite emphasized yeah. as being. A, yeah. And it it it's, it does study them, and it does objectify mm-hmm. them as any kind of sort of filmmaker would do. But there's a sense that you know they have autonomy and stuff, but it's not condescending. I don't think. The thing I'd say is that they exist aside from what's going on, and then they're sometimes framed, but it it doesn't feel like a token. It feels like kind of integral to how we should be viewing the main unit of analysis, i.e. these soldiers. Mm -hmm. Um, When they speak, it's not subtitled. I know that, but obviously when it's in French, or in French case, so there's a a kind of something going on there with like a kind of... Mm, Yeah. Um, I made the point that they seem to exist as another part of the landscape, and they are included, they're not omitted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose that can be read two ways, politically speaking. They're either another object on the landscape, which mm-hmm. is very dubious, mm-hmm. or it's a way for a white filmmaker to not omit something quite integral without, perhaps she, she doesn't feel like she has the tools or the inclination to even start interrogating that experience. Mm-hmm. So it's the idea of including something without admitting it entirely. Just a kind of slight comparison I can think of is I saw The Beguiled, Sophia Coppola's yeah. The mm-hmm. Beguiled, um, and obviously that was set in the Deep South. Uh, during the Civil War, there's no real engagement with race at all mm-hmm. in that film, and that was one of the criticisms of the film yeah. that came out. Sophia Coppola turned around and was sort of like, I, I know it was, I know race exists, there's something to think about here. I couldn't do it in justice with the terms of the film. And that was her explanation for it. So she admitted it entirely. Mm-hmm. And perhaps this is not a fair comparison in lots of ways, but I just thought that's another example of what techniques can filmmakers do. I guess the answer is have more <laughs> African yeah. filmmakers, more yeah. black filmmakers, and that's a structural and more thing. Involvement but it's like, what do we ask of these filmmakers? What, what, what do we want them to do? Yeah. I suppose. Well, that's it. How can Denise do anything other than articulate her own, you know, if we kind of laud her for being able to inhabit people's minds in a, in a kind of almost autobiographical sense of, of feeling the same kind of things that she does with her sensual, elliptical <laughs> kind of filmmaking, then should she... She's not an academic filmmaker. She shouldn't... She, is she anthropological? Like, I don't, I don't know mm. if that's the case. Um, and, yeah, I think in, in white material, you kind of see the... Maybe the limits, because that is completely through the Isabelle Huppert perspective, that is... Probably the most, if probably the most focused of her films in terms of a of a narrator, and it's and it is uppering the people on the outside of the on the other side of the walls of of that plantation. Um, so maybe that's quite a revealing one about her. I don't I don't know. I think it's interesting. I don't know. Just uh, to talk about U.S. Go Home. That's about American soldiers occupying France. So that's a sort of similar interesting relationship of occupation and that antagonism there. Um, I don't really know how to expand on it though. I mean, I think, I mean, I hate to go back to my, my favourite topic of envy, obviously, <laughs> but it, there is a, I can make a kind of thematic seek between thinking about how men look at each other in Beau Travai and how 
uh, the colonizers mm-hmm. or the colonized mm-hmm. look at each other or interact in, in the film as well. Um, I'll just do a quick, quick quote from Fanon. Yeah, he's, Frantz he's, Fanon, who... So I, he's I'm, pulling out a red hardback book. Right <laughs> um, this is, yeah, um, the book is actually so. called uh, Feeling Jewish, actually. So you can see I've just transposed... Is it a question mark? No, it isn't. Um, it's from the Royal Balm, uh, who is a um, lecturer at Southampton, actually. Where I'm from. But, um, so yeah, because I'm plugging yeah. Southampton <laughs> lecturers. Um, At least it's not your own book. But no, no it's not. Oh, my God. So the point is, is, is this is about envy. Um, and the quote here, so make no mistake, Frantz Fanon tells us, the colonised man is an envious man. So obviously Devorah is just characterising what Fanon says. Who every day dreams of being in the place of the colonialist in his house, in his bed, with his wife. Nor will he rest until things between them have been equalised. His envy thus attests to all he has been dispossessed of, not only materially, but spiritually. For in his dreams of what, having what his oppressor has, he reveals how his very dreams have been colonised. So, yeah, mm-hmm. very gilt-edged prose, very <laughs> articulate. Um, but it, it speaks to something incredibly dubious. And yeah. and sort of worrying and disconcerting is that to be colonised you are envious of the coloniser. So not only have you been colonised, you've also been attributed to all these horrible feelings that yeah. you know in Western societies anyway we characterise as being unseemly mm-hmm. and dare I say it uncivilised as well. And this is this kind of reconstituting of this oppression in lots of different ways, even the colonised person. Even their autonomy is infected. Mm-hmm. Even their, you know, thoughts. Yeah. Even their ability to express themselves. Now, if well, I suppose my point is, is that if Denis is interested in envy, if this is true, is that if that's a persuasive thesis, mm-hmm. which perhaps isn't, if she is, the col- to think about colonies, perhaps if you take Fanon's reading, is a natural extension of that, or the inverse. The fact that she was brought up in a colony is what has produced her uh, desire to interrogate envy. Yeah. Immensely dubious statement. Yeah, I find Immensely dubious statement. But I'm just interested, I mean, I suppose what it's trying to do, and this might be incredibly, you know, wrong-headed, is that it's trying to say that the feelings of someone who is colonised is not just this definitive, Mm. abstract thing to be colonised to be a colonised person is not just to be a victim. And this comes up a lot with Denis, isn't it? Yeah. It's this idea that she, she kind of interrogates victimhood. And Definitely. Really fascinating. Almost, I don't know if you read Muriel Spark, uh, but The Driver's Seat is, is an excellent book which interrogates uh, this idea of victimhood and what it means mm-hmm. to be a victim. Um, and that, that really brings to mind what Denis does a lot, is that she tries to complicate victimhood in a lot of yeah, ways. Yeah, definitely. Because just, I mean, I guess she... It might be decided it's more persuasive to say that someone who is colonised, um, and this might be true of the, the, the films that explicitly deal with mm. this, one materials perhaps, and others, is this idea that these are people with complicated emotions. Mm. That makes it, you know, a, a more persuasive depiction of them is to say that they're not just like these kind of innocent or earnest or perfect. But, 35 Shots of Rum, which um, I alluded to earlier, there's a great central relationship in that between a father and daughter who are both, it's like single father, and they both have sort of relationships with 
people in the periphery um, and are both intensely jealous or envious of the other one and which brings it to an almost incestuous kind of point which is never explicitly neither of them realise it at any point in this film and I think that's like a linking point to High Life that's like where we that's where you see the, the leap I mean do, do, do you find it um, do you find her treatment yeah, you know, or her colonial gaze or post-colonial gaze. Do you find that inhibiting when you watch her films? Do you find that as like a something that's really hard to shake off, um, even if appreciating appreciating the aesthetic or narratological merits? Of- I think so far it hasn't bothered me enough. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think in I don't know. Yeah, again, to what extent should she be exploring that? Like in Beau Travai, is it? It's it as you say, it's kind of like they are part of the landscape but then it's not really about them, and maybe she shouldn't be telling their story. Mm. Um, Which she sort of doesn't, and, but does by very nature of including them. It's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Is it? I mean, it depends how we want to judge. Yeah. But, I mean, it's 35 Shots of Rum is about Senegalese, I think the Senegalese immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yet they're in France. So is that kind of doing something where it's, it's saying that they're like French, but they're not? Or so, I, I don't mm. know. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know if to think about Colonisation is the best way to think through the final scene of Beau Travai, but mm. I definitely think we should probably talk about that final the, scene. Yeah. I mean, that's I had knowledge of that final scene with him dancing alone in the disco with Rhythm of the Night uh, playing. Um, diegetically or non-diegetically? <laughs> <laughs> Some, something like that. Um, I knew about that before the film. I think I even saw. It to, I mean, it's like the ultimate sin, but I think I probably saw that scene. Yeah, it's probably before I sort watched the film. So this is like decontextualizing this image. But to think about that is that obviously that's the disco that both the colonized and the colonizers. Mm-hmm. Perhaps this is some pretty ugly phrasing that I'm doing at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry about that. Um, well, that they're both the... in there, but when he's there at the end. No, it's just him, and obviously this is his yeah. memory working in some bizarre way, but. There, or yeah. The, you know. The... Well, you see, you see him leaving the club earlier in the film. That because he's wearing the same shirt, so I assume it's it's supposed to be Artery's dance rhythm of the night. He jumps out into the street, and all the rest of his crew are carrying one dude down the street. If you remember that, and yeah. he's got like a crown on his head. It's all the bonhomie and the... Um, yeah, which he's omitted. From he's as well. a, yeah, but I wonder if that's um. Yeah. And it's like lads abroad and all the yeah, ladies are staying kind of, yeah. in because they, they've, you know... Yeah, the streets are empty and he kind of bounds out. Um, so why is it that moment that has followed Rhythm of the Night, if you know... If, yeah, I mean... I... Why, yeah, why hearken to that specifically? That's, nice. that's, that's a good something. question. I, I don't know. Um, so, yeah. But, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I, it, I can't speak to it in terms of thinking about uh, kind of colonial gazes. I mean, what I would say is just that that scene is just focused on that scene, particularly the last scene. It is so visceral and it's and it and it is taken on so much kind of cultural sort mm-hmm. of capital is you know, the spectacle of it is it seems to be so but when at that IFR IFFR uh, masterclass yeah. um that Claire Denis did, you know, when she mentioned Ripple of the Night, there's like a ripple of joy in the crowd. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's very much, you know, kind of attached to it. So what do we think it is about that scene? Is it it's kind of pure unexpectedness? Or is it something else going on there? You know, just the marriage yeah. of this 
cheesy music, yeah. song and this quite profound. I mean, do we empathise with Galoop in that last scene? Like, do is it is he being very self-regarding and sort of you know because he's very like swanning around? Is it pathetic? <laughs> um, or yeah. or is it something that quite understandable and worse? There's something about his kind of stare, right? When he's in, when he's there alone, and he's you you see him watching like no one, watching this kind of like fancy that's mm. that's like before him and that's the what you've been doing throughout the movie is, is watching these people well yeah and another way to read it perhaps is it is the, the final articulation or it's the final break from the repression of yes mm. envy <laughs> but this is it I know, but like this is it it's so un, it's so deli- but it's sort of mannered as well it's bizarre it's mannered yeah, and yeah. it's uninhibited it's kind of controlled but it's also this sense of kind of it being unleashed it's when he very... finally becomes unleashed. Yeah, yeah, but even then there's a sort of... There's a performance to it, yeah. which is yeah. very particular. Um, so I find it a curious mm. scene in lots of ways. I mean, you just just in terms of pieces, just quickly, on okay. whether, like, what's good and bad to write about High Life, I would just make it quick. Okay. But well, Jessica Kang's piece yeah. uh, on High Life, which was done at a festival, yeah. I understand, uh, is brilliant. I'd say, and it sounds like a you sounded like you're about to say no. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I've just just from the perspective of doing a review at a festival is super hard, and yeah. you know, I was, I mean, I've said before about how I can't make any kind of great thematic or critical kind of yeah. interpretations. Well, you know, so, some people can, <laughs> and it's what Jessica Kiang does in this review, and it's very elegantly written. Um, is it, it talks, uh, it kind of treats high life. Sorry. It's, Highlight as this, um, you know, it's about sci-fi. So we, when we, the expectation about thinking about sci-fi is physics, thinking about space, it's about you know, you know how physics works. Yeah. But of course, Claire Denis doesn't focus on physics. It's about juices, and fluids, <laughs> it's biology, and the way in which Jessica Kiang writes about this, I just thought was brilliant. And it's a great way about writing a review at a festival. I think you just go, this is my thesis, mm. and I'm going to go for it, and it. It's persuasive. She's she's the best first look reviewer, I think. She's like, I, I aspire to even <laughs> get anywhere near her. Superior review from uh, Venice, I think it was, was great. And she did one, she did a really good one for First Man as well. So maybe the galactic <laughs> stuff um, is saying that yeah. that uh, you know speaks to her in yeah. some way. Um, but that was an example of a really great piece written to deadline. Yeah. Um, on high life, in terms of bad pieces. Uh, thinking about um, Claire Denis films, mm. um, I have to look, look at academia. I think in, in yeah. a way because I was like, looking up researching like uh, Billy Budd to Bochabai pieces about well, the relationship between the text Billy Budd and the film and what it had in common and not, which is, was my instinct as a kind of literary mm-hmm. scholar or <laughs> student, I should say, probably <laughs> uh, in between. Um, it's my, yeah, what was the links between the texts? And I was designing right. And which sort of reduces and misses the point quite a lot, obviously, of cinema. Yeah, just makes it <laughs> and, so and, literal. And Claire Denis as well. But there was a, there was a, I saw like a kind of, uh, an abstract for a symposium or something, or like a, a, an essay thing, um, which was just like, the way in which Melville's text appears in Denis' film is bizarre. It's bizarre. And that often speaks, and as I do this lots as well, treating cinematic, uh, items or objects, yeah. films, that's what they call it, yeah. as literary text, and then being kind of 
bemused when it doesn't conform to my literary framework and mm. interpretation. And I feel like to read Claire Denis films, and that's what makes Claire Denis quite vital in so many ways, I think, is that it, that kind of pure exponent of cinema. I'm so, I'm, all the trite <laughs> phrasing now is coming out. You can tell I'm a literary yeah. scholar who's just seen one film. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that's it. And I feel like, weirdly, those bad pieces show what cinema can offer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it is doing science so totally detached mm. from what this literary critic is is wanting or expecting from a object, and, and that's part of this this post colonial question is that is more academic perhaps than what, or certainly the, where I've seen it online has been in on JSTOR and stuff yeah. like that, and I, and my that's why I, want, I was thinking about it because we just don't see that addressed in the mainstream media. Like it's not it doesn't seem to come up in reviews and so I wonder if that's like So that's what speaks to that tweet originally that we yeah. from Little yeah. Chop Cheese. Um, <laughs> we stand a legend. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, and you have this, these sort of uh, fawning pieces that, yeah. that admit it and perhaps that's going on in scholarship, perhaps. So or did you have any other like pieces no, no, or any other? No, I just thought to try and get because this is sort of born from spectacle, isn't it? It's like mm-hmm. what why we're talking about Claire Denis is because she is of the moment. There's a lot of talk and you you invoke something called film twitter yeah which i've heard yeah, of, you heard of that yeah, yeah. Like, you know, sort of passing um, yeah. and how she's much celebrated on that yeah well i wonder how much she's invoked sometimes as a as a in a sort of tokenistic way almost and i wonder if as if she wasn't as good as any other filmmaker and there's a reason but we're saying we're going to just say claire denis because it like ticks a box or something you know and and if her films aren't maybe that accessible or that easy to get hold of before the last sort of year, then are people saying, making those claims based on having seen like Otravati and now High Life and they're going, this is the greatest filmmaker alive. Mm. Um, you know, someone like Lynn Ramsey, who I find a very similar director in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, but she's got like three movies that everyone's seen. Um, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm being dubious by... You certainly of, are a dubious uh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you should always be dubious of hyperbole like that. Yeah. yeah, obviously she's not the greatest, but you can sort of... I mean, has anyone actually said that? that? Or is this like a straw man? Really? I've seen plenty of people saying on on Twitter, saying the greatest living filmmakers... Yeah, it's this, it's this place... Of, no, don't, yeah. don't go there. Um, saying the greatest living filmmakers newest is out, and you have to see it. I mean, yeah. And like... I mean... Yeah, I, she's she's great. I love her stuff, but I'm, I feel like it's only in the last couple of years that people have started saying the greatest living filmmaker, and I wonder if that's there's, there's something bad faith about that. And I mean, it's bad. maybe I'm bad faith to, to question that. You are. I mean, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, I mean, people's motivations for anything are always, you know, yeah. as Denise shows us. <laughs> yeah, well, irreducibly complex. The taboo of film uh, to uh, <laughs> Uh, are irreducibly complex and so there might be a sense of bad faith but there's a sense of bad faith calling out saying calling out bad things and calling out good yeah. things all the time that's bad faith is an excellent motive <laughs> things, I think um, I don't claim enough cinematic knowledge to position Denis anywhere in the canon but I will say that her films and seeing Beau Travai, uh for example and I'll put that as the exemplar for me like I felt this is something I have not been exposed to elsewhere mm. and vital when it made me think about things in ways that I wouldn't otherwise, um, which is a, a criteria for which to judge it. But the sense of her being put on a pedestal is kind of understandable. If there is a dearth of women filmmakers, you, you expect 
the, the ones that made it through and managed to make films to be to, to be lauded yeah. and that makes sense oh and, absolutely like, and yeah. yeah I mean but I, I mean the only other thing I said the only other thing is that I've seen some characterizations with Denis I think even by our own producers I might have read it like it was this idea like I saw Potrovoy and I couldn't believe it was made by a woman filmmaker. I saw I think it was that like Ralph yeah, Lauren's son. Some, yeah, yeah, that some, who produced who Highlight. Produced, <laughs> and he was like comparing oh, her to Catherine Bigelow. What's what was out of that conversation you go? He went to his father, Ralph Ralph Lauren. What am I gonna do when I grow up? And he went, Do you wanna be a producer? Yeah. And he went, Yeah, and then it just happened. Just like, what on earth? Um, no, I'm sure he's great. Um but <laughs> no idea. But like I don't know if there's that thing is like, oh, does that then speak to the idea that women filmmakers who succeed have to adopt masculine traits, whatever that means, yeah. to then get there? Like, because you hear that about like Catherine Bigelow or someone, don't you? Yeah. So yeah, the yeah. successful female directors, or women directors, I should say females, bizarre isn't Women directors um, are the ones that adopt masculine. Is that some narrative that goes in? And yeah. then perhaps the idea to, re- to, to claim Denis in a certain way. Well, even that's centrist like, framing to talk about is, even is comparing them as if you know I just said oh I find Lynn Ramsey similar to Cladini like that's dubious as well because it's like why 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 those two um, I think Ralph Lauren Jr's comment says more about him than it does about Claire Denis like he's seeing the masculine in it for me it felt incredibly feminine and that's what's unique about that film and what makes it what such a great war movie is that it's got this female perspective on how she looks at the boys and the men and what she's bringing to it and like it's an all her films I, I find I find that kind of refreshing no one said the female gaze on this podcast yet so another gaze awesome. another gaze I will say is fucking great like periodical magazine. Oh right, yeah, yeah. The another gaze, like the writing and the editing on it. Is yeah, the class. Uh, so just on itself, but yeah, I mean, yeah, so it feels like I'm plugging a lot of stuff yeah. in a very sort of coy, underhand way. Um, no, um, well, yeah, well, to link that in with the post-colonial stuff, I, I, Sorry. I um, I've read that uh, part of the thing, which is this kind of. It speaks to this kind of knotty, gnarly question: is that it's a white woman looking at black men, mm-hmm. uh, and that's like the, uh, a perspective that we need to interrogate, uh, which Bochvai is is it is there, I suppose. But I mean, <laughs> is offering a kind of marginalised gaze to a marginalised <laughs> group of a different kind of mar- I mean, what yeah. goes on there? There's such in terms of the hierarchy and power structures there. It's I mean, it's beyond my comprehension, yeah. surprisingly, to try and to negotiate that labyrinth. But, I mean, it, they're worthy questions. It's just what you do to it. And and is that white female gaze so unique and particular towards a black yeah. body, it would not exist anywhere else. I mean, and, that's the pro- and the product is the films that we get. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, with that, do you have any charges against Claire Denis... Beautravai, High Life. Is Beautravai one of the best films of 1999? Is it, you know, is, is, is High Life uh, another new sci-fi classic? I guess my charge, this is going to be convoluted, is that I'm disappointed in High Life because I so loved her other works and she's failed to really bring something personal and cool to sci-fi I feel like she's failed at that so I'm a little disappointed in my life so what's the charge? 
No, I mean, I suppose I'd suppose I'd agree. In in a, from the perspective from which you're coming, I think *Bojovice* is a superior film, mm-hmm. which I guess yeah, you do probably. to to high life. Whatever that means, I just the experience that I yeah. had. Um, I I liked her. I mean, I liked her. I was impressed in some ways. I, like you say, I, I kind of found the opacity of Rob Patterson's characters, his character, and other characters off-putting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unengaging in a way that wasn't intellectually stimulating enough to justify. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, oh, that's the, you know, I just I didn't find it profound enough to be like, oh, that's why Delete's yeah. doing this and framing it as such. Uh, so it, it wasn't mitigated enough by the kind of intellectual kind of satisfaction you might derive from it. The kind of emptiness of the so, wait, so what's the charge? Who is the this loquacious barrister? Yeah, so he knows in thought. charge? I mean, I don't. I don't. You don't have to charge. No, I don't mean to. I mean, I dare charge. Um, I mean, the charge is is that. Sounds like quite envious. I'm immensely envious. Uh, the charge, I mean, the charge is that the, the, I did not find the, emo- the, how to phrase this, um, the emotional resonance, no, the emotion, <laughs> the intellectual resonance did not meet the emotional shortfall, but in high okay. Does that make it's any nicely sense? Said, that, yes. is, that is quite a charge. <laughs> and, and that's the question of why we go for the movies for as well. Yeah. And immensely aroused. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you were aroused, but you didn't, you know, you, you entered the sex, what the fuck was. And, yeah, and, and I was, yeah, yeah. completely obliterated by it. You were the monk. I was the monk. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's, that's the metaphor. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I work as you all charge as well, that yeah. the discourse is too hyperbolic and not nuanced enough in terms of the post-colonial gaze. Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, I don't, I don't know enough about the post-colonial gaze to, mm-hmm. to really comment. I feel like I've kind of said some nonsense earlier because, but I'm just wondering why that discourse is in there. I think it's not a mainstream conversation. Like, I didn't talk about colonialism until I went to uni. Like, but it's, it's not talked about. But it is talked about in a lot of film criticism now. You think? Well, maybe they won't use those terms, but we certainly talk about representation. Okay. And I think that's a okay. and I think they they're hand in yeah. hand. Um, and I just I just know that there's gonna be some well known piece out there somewhere which deals probably. exactly with, uh, <laughs> Probably on another game. I mean I was saying there's a lot of it in academia. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a lot of it in academia and I think I have seen a few pieces I dare say perhaps Clio Journal. Okay. Did you know this? Yeah, yeah. I think there, there very well might be a piece on there. Uh, which is useless advice. Isn't yeah. it? You'd have to I go through the whole archive. <laughs> but I, I do, I do think. But perhaps, yeah, it talks less. Um, yeah, but, the, but it's interesting that politics is informing a lot of the, this yeah. this project, and it's less. Well, the aesthetics are there; and they are considered. But wait, what? I suppose it, it, what I'm saying is easier to marginalise the political angle on the film than it is the aesthetic angle. It feels like there's quite a co- right. quite a comprehensive. Uh, debate oh, about the aesthetics can't... of Claire oh, yeah. Denis films, yeah. and there's perhaps 
with political angles necessarily, there is a jostling. Yeah. So if you see her as a female faker, female, 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 yeah. Um, then that necessarily prioritises that over thinking about colonialism yeah. and race, although obviously someone come back quickly, there's an intersectional argument to be yeah. made, what you're talking about. But I just, I think in, in, innately often, political kind of questions crowd each other out in a way that perhaps aesthetic questions don't. I don't know. Do you think that part Last of that is the, 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 you know, the strength of her and the consistency of her style and taking different sort of narrative voices? It can be is, more identified. Perhaps. It's harder to identify the politics in that, yes. maybe, is, is what I'm saying. Uh, so, I mean, uh, that would be the natural logical mm, end yeah. point, what I'm saying. And I so that's not what people are reaching for, especially if her films, uh, they've probably never been as, as much focus on her as there is now. Mm-hmm. And so if people are writing about them, they want to, they're trying to big her up. Yeah, right? you need the hyperbole. Yeah, oh no. It's a justification. You need it. Yeah. Um, but maybe now we're at a point with with her arc in the in the discourse that, that she can be more thoroughly kind of looked at politically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll, I mean, I must be honest. Like me making claims on like the nature of the conversation. I just, I don't, I don't have an interest in it. I just, I find it. So you've got the book on envy there. Yeah, I know. I just, but I just, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult one. Weirdly, I do it a lot more. For my academic work, I do it a lot in terms of like how my specialised subject is talked about a lot, and I get obsessive about it when it's so. Like, I lay claim to almost no filmmakers whatsoever. When people are chatting about them online, yeah. I think one I know is so fucking little anyway. But secondly, I mean. Just, just let it, let it happen. Let, <laughs> let, let the, you know, the, the conversation, you know, run itself. Yeah, I mean, the takes are going to take. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. So take Did you want to relist all three charges? Okay, so the charges are that she uh, sort of doesn't live up to the potential of the science fiction genre and herself and, and has yeah and and bring her own style into that mm-hmm. framework. Then we've got the charge that. She gave you blue balls. <laughs> can um, I intellectual blue balls? Can intellectual blue balls. <laughs> just yeah, the the intellectual resonance in this is in high life. I think yeah. both of I is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like you're both kind yeah. of letting both of I off the hook. My my line for, uh, was it ever on the hook? Really? No, yeah. so I know it, it's always in the net. Um, but I yeah, my angle on high life, which is just an angle, is polemic. Um, is that, yeah, the intellectual resonance does not meet the emotional shortfall, which I think was my instinct coming out. Mm. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty much all I've got. I've got nothing resembling thought processes. <laughs> all I've got is my base instincts. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I always feel a sense of guilt up coming out of lots of these sorts of films and it's like, oh God, what have I done wrong? <laughs> like, when you know when a film, your film doesn't, you know, resonate in such right, a way. Right. Where, what am I in this yeah. thing? What critical faculties are not, you know, working What synapses have what shut Yeah, what synapses have shut down. Okay. And then the hyperbolic. The, yeah, the, the, the conversation's hyper, hyperbolic and we kind of need to move it into something maybe more critical. Um, certainly a mainstream kind of yeah. conversation around But that. I mean, I say with anything, that is uh, what appears to be newly discussed. The first articulations are always ugly, yeah. misshapen, <laughs> malformed. Because that is the nature of how things are and discussed with absolutely anything. Not everything is going to be framed in the most pristine way. It is because that's how, you know, 
And that's why you're off to Cannes tomorrow. That's why I'm off to Cannes. He's ugly. To produce a monster. Yeah. Um, yeah, that is that is my purpose. I so I feel like from this, it's not... Are, are we actually going to send Claire Denis down? Or do we need to like now let her kind of... It's almost like she needs to go to the people's court. She needs to have yeah. the, the court public opinion to, and see what that conversation brings. Yeah. Um, but High Life maybe is like on parole almost oh, for it's or or community service or something community, like. service, community yeah. service I mean I will just say that the problem with court martials particularly is bring it back to Beaujolais and Billy Budd are we court martialing Claire Denis here we're well, we taking away her you're going to strip is, a woman of her agency to the make the thing is is that in Billy Budd Captain Veer who is Forestier's equivalent he after Billy Budd shoots Claggett, so Gloop dies in Billy Budd. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. So, because Billy Budd can't articulate himself, because what Claggett does is he accuses Billy Budd of, you know, trying to cause mutiny on the ship and the like. And Claggett uh, makes this accusation in front of the captain there. And Billy Budd is sort of stunned and so kind of incontinent by this charge, because he knows he hasn't done anything wrong. He can't speak. Mm-hmm. And instead he just has this involuntary reaction where he kills Claggett. It's just like this inability to articulate takes its form. Mm. So what Billy Budd, who's before then innocent, when charged with a crime, becomes guilty by the nature of being charged okay. with a crime. Captain Veer is very sympathetic towards Billy Budd, likes him, you know, kind of mater- paternal relationship going on and stuff like that. Captain Veer... He holds the court-martial, and he's pretty much judge, jury, executioner. Mm-hmm. And he much is like sympathetic to Billy Budd throughout. He is saying that, we know you're a good person, you know. But he said, by the laws of the ship, by the nature of what, you know, your crime, murder, mm-hmm. you, have, you have to walk the plank, you have to be executed. Because, you know, stuff like the morale on the ship, all these kind of intangible mm-hmm. factors, the nature of their duty overrides, you know, the common sense response perhaps to the case. So I suppose if we then transpose this quite overwrought metaphor <laughs> to the court of public opinion on Denis, is that we'd be careful that even, you know, the most kind of well-meaning mm. and ardent defenders might have a pernicious kind of result. So, you know, the ways in which we talk about Claire Denis, even if we, Could we lord, her. We lord yeah. her, it might end up with Ooh. the wrong answer. Ooh. Ooh. What the <laughs> fuck does that mean? <laughs> and I'm willing to leave it so vague. But... Okay. So, did you want to talk about Madeline's Madeline? Yeah, let's take a, a break. So... Got a lot to chew over for the judge. Um... <laughs> <got> the judge is <laughs> like, stop! I mean, this is an audio media, but he's like, you know, lying back, completely, you know, debilitated. I'm like the soldiers, when they've <laughs> yeah. they been doing the yoga, yes. and they're like... Sort of leery, aren't you? I, I cannot, in good conscience, send Claire Denis to the clink. I can't make her walk the gameplay. No, no. no. I, here in your arguments, I feel like we need to reprimand her. Or not her, well, maybe. I always need to reprimand I fucking love High Life, so it's quite hard <laughs> for me to go... No, I mean, you, to, can't, you can't reprimand You know, it's just... Are her crimes reprimandable? Is it... No, I mean, I've, this is right. I mean, on the questions of race... I could not even begin. Yeah. We've mean, tried. Well, yeah, I know I'll perfect yeah. every word that's coming out of my mouth. <laughs> useless. 
So I can't even begin. I mean, it would be a, a opportunistic yeah. charge on my behalf. Uh, but from the sounds of it, a lot of people are fucking fuming about it. Um, and it's worthy of more interrogation. Mm. And I just want you just wonder if these things have been admitted. A lot of Twitter, to me, this is not on this question at all, but just generally seems to be people reacting. As like kind of, it's people going, I can't believe that this is being talked about in such a way. And I often haven't seen the original thing talked yeah, about in that yeah. way ever. Mm. And I know that's my own ignorance and stuff like that, but it's, I just see reactions all the time. Yeah. It's such a bizarre thing to see. It's like, going, I can't believe this person said this thing about this thing. And you just go, I've never even seen that. Yeah. I haven't even heard anyone say and that's that. That's what Twitter is, isn't it? It's just accumulating numbers. You have to follow the most amount of people to hear all of the conversation. You have to have the largest follower account for your voice to be worth anything. Yeah, that's it. And, and, I, I, and honestly, that action reaction is kind of vital in the conversation. But um, it's not necessarily about straw men, but it, it, you, I don't know. Like You see something that you intuitively agree with on Twitter. It's like someone going, I can't believe this and this and this. And you go, yeah, well, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> that's what like my reaction is a lot of the time. It's going, this thing is bad, or this thing requires more thought. You go, well, yeah. <laughs> I, I know. Yeah, and well, then four days still talking about it. Or it's, yeah. So I don't know, I suppose that's a bizarre nature of the mm. debate. But yeah, I mean, yeah, and I, and I, I mean, she's, it's Claire Denis as a person. I don't know her. Well, obviously, we saw her both at IFFR. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever... I've not seen made her. I mean, she sounded, she was just intensely curious. Yeah. And just had this kind of, you know, sort of, I don't know. She's kind of unrelentingly articulate, I found, even in even yeah. in her second language. Have you heard of being interviewed by Ryan Johnson on the A24 podcast? I haven't. That is hilarious to check out because obviously he's. Uh, Star Wars director and he's but he's got this kind of film taste and film indie cred um, but they have this weird conversation where he just asks her about like the cameras that she is and she's clearly not interested in that she's interested in the themes and the things that are going on in the movie and she just keeps shutting him down it's, I, um, I mean it's, yeah to try and work out the things with filmmakers is bizarre I remember first first year at Canon I got sent to an interview to Kashi Nikkei Oh yeah. I said, new fuck all Did that. you uh, swat up on his hundred well, odd films? Well, no. Well, this is it. I just went. I saw the film Blade of the Immortal, and I just went. Uh, it was something about like kind of death cults and moral ambiguities surrounding death cults. So I went, oh, what's going on in your film about you know in terms of revenge and and and, and when is it morally justifiable? And he just went, I wouldn't even think that cerebrally about it, mate. Sort of being <laughs> to paraphrase. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I'm sort of crossing off <laughs> sort of over over interpretation yeah. I've written. On my on my notepad, and then the geezer next to me just goes, "Takashi Miike, what's your favourite sword?" <laughs> and he goes, "What a question! Yeah. <laughs> what a question that is! Oh, I've got this geezer's character over here." And, then, yeah, and then they were like wax lyrical about swords for about a half hour. I was just going, Great. "I've gone quit quite yeah. clearly to, 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 to take part in this discussion." So yeah, in terms of like the question to ask, I mean, I, I feel like Denise is a nice inverse, perhaps, of that. The technical elements she's less yeah. interested in. Just the themes. It's about ideas, yeah. isn't it? This is it. I mean, there's, I don't know. There's perhaps there's two types of cinema critics. There's ones who are interested in the technical aspects and ones that are interested in the idea. What, well, never the twain Never me. and never, never. to me. And yeah. obviously the good side of the idea side. And obviously of the course, evil yeah. 
nerdy side with the technical side and yeah apparently they exist in tandem yeah I don't, I don't know where, where we'll go with this I, um, I feel I, like you're trying to start a mutant I'm trying yeah, <laughs> no, no, yeah. No. Just, just standing in queues and over here with people that's perfect <laughs> Um, no, it's fine. I have to so, say something about the state. Alright, so what we're doing with, with Denise, so she's she's off the hook, she's free, she's free you're free to go, Miss Denise. Yeah, make Denis a few Denis. more films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, like, He's, just... If, would you want to see her do more stuff in America, or, or, you know, in English language, or would you kind of think that she's... Well, I guess it'd get more funding, wouldn't it, if she did more mm. of those projects, mm. you know, kind of uh, Western back projects yeah. or, or European or American back projects. And does that then mean uh, better films and more a fuller realization of her vision? I don't know. Perhaps it does, and that would be good. But from high life, you're—I imagine you're yours more dubious about it than I am. Well, I think you should give it another shot. But um, I'm sceptical. I guess I won't have my expectations as high as they were for High Life for our next film, but I hope it's got the same amount of funding and interest. That would be great. Yeah. Is, is, is the awkward dialogue, to my ear, awkward dialogue? Yeah. Is that due to the trying to. I know obviously Trouble Every Day half mm. is 50 50 English and French, uh, but is that kind of awkward? dialogue a product of this trying to or is that the point this is what I am so uncertain I didn't find the dialogue awkward in the sense that you know when you uh, watch like Youth the Paolo Sorrentino film and that terrible dialogue oh that film Um, I mean we're going back into the movie now yeah, um, sorry. So, so, but I, I'm just but, saying that that does speak to your question. Yeah, the point of is, is, is this? But yeah, perhaps yeah. it was just distance. Well, her next it. film, I believe, is another Arpats. Uh, collab and it's based on a Danish Johnson uh, story and he's a pretty great writer so maybe there'll be something from that so that's going to be English language good with literary adaptions isn't it? yeah exactly so it's worked before so thanks so much for coming on I mean it's been a Mr. pleasure Owen. it's been so nice have you got anything you want to plug or nothing I want to plug at all um, just you know. where can we find your work <laughs> um, you can, so you, I write uh, the Cannes Film Festival reviews and the Locarno Film Festival reviews for the upcoming. Mm-hmm. I've never said it so proudly. <laughs> um, however, I edit them all later um, for posterity. <laughs> um, and I put them on my WordPress, which is josephowen30.wordpress.com. It's very humble, as you imagine, but the prose is a bit tighter <laughs> than the kind of the mad, the... mad sort of scrolls that happens at festivals. Um, so, so that would be the place to go. They are, you know, superficial but readable sometimes. Um, the only other thing is that just I want just well wishes and good luck for finishing my my PhD because that's oh, what then. I need. Right is that now. around the corner? Well, the aim is to finish by October. If my supervisor listens to this, she's pissing herself <laughs> at this point. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's, it, yeah. So it's the last stretch, and that's on. Um, uh, guy called Carl Schmidt, who's a political theorist. And what's the title? Uh, Schmidt, Modernism, Sovereignty, the three units of analysis. That's so it. it's bringing uh, Schmidt's theories of sovereignty, uh, seeing how they're rendered and, or articulated in, in avant-garde art and modernist literature. Um, that, that's, that's it, basically. I've got a title recommendation. Please. Life is Schmidt. Life and is Schmidt. And then you die. About Schmidt, maybe. About Schmidt, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
But yeah, it's all, well, Schmidt's been recuperated without going too much well, into it. Cut the Schmidt, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> but cut the Schmidt. Yeah, well, that, cut the Schmidt. Because Schmidt has been recuperated. He is the go-to explainer for modern political phenomena these days. With you know our you know our, our ruptured world, um, he is used as you know the queasy intellectual justification for all the nasty, right. quasar you know neo-fascistic and totalitarian impulses of you know Western politics at the moment. Now, I, I think. Um, part of that reason is because his theory of politics is seen as ontological. It says something about us as people. Um, and he has been put on this pedestal in a lot of ways because of this seduction through the Nazis. So there's always mm-hmm. this queasy seduction about, oh, he was a Nazi, but wasn't he clever? Um, to explain political phenomena. But also partly because it's, he's, it's, by his own kind of uh, characterization, his is a theory of politics. And that th- therefore has some truth value and meaning. And my argument is that actually his, his thought is, is informed by uh, innumerable aesthetic cravings mm. um, that can be you know, brought into relief by looking at all the <laughs> nice books and all the nice art and you know, thinking, thinking through things like Cubism, Futurism, Dada, Surrealism, and then people like Wolf, Faulkner, Beckett. Do all these things to re-articulate sovereignty and speak to Schmidt in interesting ways. Maybe way. you should do an audiobook version of the PhD. You should read it. Do you think that would be fucking awful? That'd be the most <laughs> driest. The whole first section is the question of the aesthetic. Can you fucking imagine? <laughs> um, so yeah. So just well wishes for that, and 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 that and that's pretty much it. Yeah, nearly there. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, oh, and I've got a couple of pieces on playlists, obviously, from IFFR. Yeah, is there a Twitter or something? To it's Twitter, yeah, so it's... Um, Twitter, what's that? Joseph, so it's Joseph Owen 30. So Perfect. That's it, and Joseph Owen 30. Find your work. Um, yeah, and yeah, and you can find this. Cool, yeah, we'll link to all that in, in that's the very show kind. notes. That's yeah, really it's been wonderful, haven't That's you? so very kind it's of you. Um, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed it. It's nice to be able to try and formulate ideas <laughs> on the spot. <laughs> Which you know to be yeah, dubious. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> still hear them come out. <laughs> yeah, God. and then you, uh, the next to, person starts talking, and you're like, "Oh, to be that, a ge- to be yeah. a geezer, <laughs> to be asked <laughs> to, be your, to ask your, your opinion of so yeah. often when you know so little." <laughs> um, it's been nice to have an ally against Ben as well in terms of high life. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's just it's my instincts. Yeah, I I mean they're often wrong. <laughs> but I feel like if your instincts and ours match up against this Ben. Criminal I'm the judge. I'm gonna despise you. <laughs> yeah. So. so yeah, we're in, in danger of contempt of court now. Yeah, yeah exactly. That could be a whole. And I've been tweeting it. about this throughout, which is the worst <laughs> contempt. Of court. That is contempt. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you can you can find us on on Twitter, whatever that is as well. Uh, we're at Judge Movie Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so those show notes I mentioned they'll be on judgemoviepod.wordpress.com um, all the links and things there yeah. and some information mm-hmm. about new episodes maybe as well yeah um, so we're going to have a slightly altered schedule in the next few weeks because we're doing some festivals over the summer so uh, nice. yeah it's, fe- it's festival season we're not going to Cannes unfortunately um, if you want to record a dispatch from your queasy I could, queasy I could try yeah. I mean I'd be pissed definitely yeah. but um, I could yeah, do that yeah. I could yeah send I'll, a voicemail or something yes yeah. 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 this um, 
Yeah, well, I'll tell everyone about Judge Movie. I'll be in the press room and on the table. Oh, yeah. yeah. Judge Movie, you've I've heard of done it. that. Yeah. 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 Amazing no, podcast. Next one's going to be phenomenal. Yeah, yeah so, so next uh, time we're going to talk about Sundance London, where there's going to be some of the highlights from the Sundance Film Festival in Utah from last January. Um, and then following that is Sheffield Dog Fest. So some scintillating documentary news. Yeah. Um, that's a great festival and then after that we're going to be back on another 99 project episode or maybe something else we're kind maybe of something else. Kind in the works we'll for see. that one yeah. um, then into July we're going to be talking about Il Cinema Retrovato in Italy which we're both going to yeah um, <laughs> yeah and that's a kind of rep festival uh, showcasing restorations and classic films so that's going to be really fun to talk about and hopefully get some guests on there yeah, and then later on in that month there'll be Cinema Rediscovered, which is like the sort of progeny of Cinema Ricciarato. They, uh, it's the Bristol version of Cinema Ricciarato, a rap film festival with a lot of love. Yes, there. That's a great little festival. And then um, after that, we'll probably be kind of back on to the latter half of the year and doing some, uh, getting into some more ninety nine projects, but also seeing where we are with film culture. I say as I stroke my chin and kind of, um, yeah, I'm sure there'll be loads more to talk about then. Um, but until then, there's a lot of bad films out there, <laughs> so stay safe. <laughs>